New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Since the 1960s, Paul Winter has been in the vanguard of musicians whose art expresses special appreciation for the natural music of our world, including wolves, whales, birds, wind, and water. His inclusivity combines everything from Bach to Bossa Nova, and his albums Common Ground and Callings are cultural landmarks, as is his album Misa Gaia, which means Earth Mass, commissioned by the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. Misa Gaia is a testament of faith, joy, thanksgiving, and reverence for the special gift that is Mother Earth. Paul has recorded more than 50 albums with his ensemble, the Paul Winter Consort, and his community of colleagues, who are some of the finest jazz, classical, and world music musicians. He's a seven-time Grammy Award winner, and his latest album, Light of the Sun, is the most personal musical offering of his 60-year recording career, showcasing his signature saxophone. Join us for the next hour as we explore the prodigious talent of more than 60 years of music with Paul Winter as we investigate what is keeping him going. I'm speaking with Paul at his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Justine. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you too, Paul. And um, first of all, I just I wanted to thank you for giving us the New Dimensions permission so many, many, many years ago to use your Icarus. And you've recorded it in so many settings over the de- decades. And I, I just want you to know what an honor it is to be able to include it um, as the theme music for New Dimensions. And I just put my hand on my heart with gratitude. Thank you, Paul. Well, you're very, very welcome. Great. I, you know, we want, you've been doing this for a long time, and you, your first band was 
somewhere I read it, you were 12 years old when you first started doing this. So tell us what what a 12 year old leading a band. What tell us about that? I had started playing quite early when I was seven, uh, playing clarinet. Uh, uh, eventually, then a year or two later, with my sister, who was two years older and was quite a pianist, and we did a lot of duo concerts around the greater Altoona area um, for those years, and were uh, sort of known as the Winter Kids. Um, and that was fun, but I got a little bit tired of um, of of uh, playing for the the ladies at the uh, uh, auxiliary of the Methodist Church or whatever it is, and. Uh, when I was 12, what I really wanted to do was play with other kids. And um, my mother got from a music store in Pittsburgh some folios called the Hungry Five, uh, uh, folios of German umpa music um, and that, 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 that were um, written for clarinet, cornet, trombone, and tuba. And so we organized a little band with those instruments called it the Little German Band. And we, we, we uh, started off on our, our uh, career there in, in, in the area, um, playing, we'd play these songs and tell jokes in between. So it was, a, it was a kind of comedic little band, but it was great fun. Uh, one night, we actually got paid $2 uh, at the YWCA, which meant 50 cents a piece. And we were amazed that you could actually have that much fun and get paid for it. Um, it, it might have set my path uh, at, at that point uh, for my for my life journey in music. I know that Paul, uh, you play ensemble a lot, and I know that with that, it's it's like deep listening to one another. It's um, like doing some improv. And so tell us, what is it like to create music with a group of you all collaborating in the creation? Well, I could say it's like playing volleyball because it's a combination of uh, getting to solo and then getting to be a, a communist. And it's... Uh, for me, it's always been interesting that it's, it's analogous to a sort of pure democracy, where the idea I've always had in my ensembles was that every person had the prerogative to be uh, a soloist and express themselves, but the overall prime uh, value was the, the total sound, the group sound. So it, it was that balance between individual expression and the the well-being of a group and it's uh it's great fun when you have kind of the right people in the right place at the right time i i call it a creative uh crucible and it's uh i've had it a few times over these years it's not something you can plan for because uh, a lot of it has to do almost with the alignment of the stars, what's happening in the zeitgeist in your, let's say, in your country at that time. And uh, when it happens, as it did with my jazz sextet, and then with the early consort and it, with several of the groups since then, it's, uh, it's really one of the most gratifying things that I know. Tell me, can you recall just any moment when uh, something 
unexpected yet delightful showed up? Can you recall a moment that you can share with us? I suppose when when we've tried uh, to, to uh, incorporate voices from different creatures, there have been times when uh, a certain chord progression um, was was improvised by one of the players that really felt like it. Say, for example, gave the spirit of the the yearning of um, of a whale song. Um, it could be a rhythm that. Uh, one of the percussionists came up with that really felt uh, somehow right to express, uh, say, the motion of a creature, uh, those kind of things. And when you have, uh, when everybody is is enthusiastic about the process, the synergy is uh, is so amazing. It's why I've always tried to leave a recording machine running all the time when we're rehearsing, because so many things can happen spontaneously. Uh, and then sometimes if you try to remember and go back to it, you can't, but if you've got it on, on a cassette or a tape or, a, or whatever you're using over the years, um, you can, you can retrieve it. That's great. I, I do that with my writing. I'll, I'll keep a little notebook and I'll just write down a word or two when yeah. something I come across something because later on, I can't remember what was that if I don't kind of. Market. Oh, sure. Yeah, in some ways. Let's go back. You must have been in your 20s when you, when you were the first group to be asked to perform jazz at the White House for the Kennedys. How old were you when, when that happened? I was 22. Um, and the way that happened, it, it was a result of the State Department tour that my jazz sextet did in the, the first six months of 1962, that that had come about from our having won a collegiate jazz festival the previous May. And um, we were a perfectly integrated band of three blacks and three whites at a time when civil rights was, a, was quite a, a, a burning issue in our country. And um, in the spirit of the, that, that, that amazing spirit of the, of the Kennedy years, which uh, had just given rise to the Peace Corps, um, we had the idea that we'd maybe propose to the State Department that they send us on a goodwill tour as a student group. We, were just, we had just finished college, and um, they had begun in the late 50s to send famous groups around the world as jazz ambassadors, they had sent Betty Goodman to Russia and Louis Armstrong to Africa and Dizzy's band to the Middle East. And uh, they had never sent out a student jazz group. And as we were sort of unofficially the top college jazz group in the country from winning the Intercollegiate Jazz Festival, um, we thought maybe they would be interested. And uh, they sent back a form letter and just said, you know, send us an audition tape and we'll have our jazz panel listen to it. And I thought that would be the end of it. And uh, three months later, they wrote a letter and said, we're going to send your group to Latin America for six months on a tour of 23 countries. So that totally changed our, our lives and uh, ex expanded our, our musical horizons uh, enormously. And um, in, in the, uh, I think the early part of 1962, 
uh, Jackie Kennedy had started a series called Concerts for Young People by Young People at, at the White House. And they were all classical. And they decided, I guess, to take a, a flyer and have a jazz group. So they invited us to play there on November 19th, 1962. A couple of weeks before the concert, uh, some journalist did some research and found out that there, there had not ever been a jazz concert before in the White House. Um, and so it was uh, going to be a little bit historic in that way. So the, um, the East Room was filled with the, the audience were children of different embassies in Washington. And the back of the room was just jammed with journalists. Uh, so we, we, we got quite a lot of publicity for that, uh, the, the next day, most papers in the country had front page pictures of a beaming first lady saying, Jackie digs jazz. And I mean, that was the, 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 the caption on the photos, that kind of thing. And uh, it wasn't as if we were chosen over other jazz groups. It wasn't that at all, because we were absolutely beginning. And in, in, in this country, we were unknown. We were well known by then in Latin America, but we had never played much in the United States. So that was a, 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 just quite a, a, a fluke that we had that opportunity. What a wonderful launch pad for a 22-year-old uh, musician. Um, so I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Paul Winter, a musician, recording artist, band leader, a genius all around. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, paulwinter.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And you'll find his newest album there on the website. It's called Light of the Sun. So I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with musician Paul Winter, and we're talking about his continued journey, his 60 years of producing and making music for all of us. And um, you mentioned that you were on tour in Brazil with this collegiate band, so to speak, that, that you had formed. And and then you went back to Brazil. In fact, you lived there. And let's talk about that whole Brazilian influence and what that means to you. The night before we left for Latin America in uh, the end of January 1962, 
the man who was going to be our manager, Gene Lees, who had been up till then the editor of Downbeat magazine, played for us um, a recording by Juan Gilberto uh, called Chega de Saudade. And it was of a new genre of music we had never heard before that was called Bossa Nova. And we were so beguiled by the beauty of this gentle, quiet music that had great rhythmic uh, energy uh, in, in a subtle way and beautiful chord changes. All the aspects of, uh, of the music we most loved, except that it wasn't loud. I mean, at that time, my band was a bebop band and everything we played, we played loud, even ballads. And that was sort of, I guess, what was that sort of typical of the energy that uh, that you have at that age. And uh, I was amazed that I could be just as moved by this very gentle music. In any case, we were very excited. We looked forward very much to the prospect of of hearing more of that music. When we would be coming to Brazil, which, which was the fifth month of the six-month tour. And in June, we arrived. And in that month uh, of June, played in 13 cities in Brazil. And we met many of those musicians and began recording an album at the Columbia Records studio there. We had uh, the prize for winning that Collegiate Jazz Festival was a recording contract with Columbia. So we uh, began recording an album there. And when we came back, they asked us to finish it because um, shortly before then, a new album by Charlie Bird and Stan Getz called Jazz Samba had become quite popular. That music touched me uh, deeply, and it was a part of my aesthetic that I kind of didn't know about. Let's say, uh, I, I think you, in, in those early years, uh, guys tend to have a, a sort of testosterone-driven uh, energy. And uh, this was a sort of a feminine side of me, of my aesthetic. Uh, I don't mean effeminate. I mean just, you know, a gentle side that um, I hadn't really known or acknowledged. And the sextet had quite a, a, a run for two, for two years that ended really with the assassination of JFK in, in uh, November of 63, a year after we had played at the White House. And uh, the world that, that we had known, that, that, uh, that we had uh, experienced in, 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 in the, the, the kind of spirit in the previous two or three years since Kennedy had been elected was seemed to be shattered. And so I, uh, I left the jazz scene and I went to Brazil. I was curious to learn more about that music. And uh, I felt very much at home there. I recorded some albums with Brazilian players. So that changed my musical direction. That changed my playing from being quite hard-edged like the bebop players to, to having uh, a, a, a darker kind of sound, maybe a, a gentler sound. And uh, I wanted to create a new ensemble with uh, different kinds of instruments than those in the jazz ensembles. And, and because of the influence of uh, Villa Lobos, the great Brazilian composer who loved cello, I fell in love with cello there. He also reintroduced me to Bach, which I had heard, I had played as a kid studying piano for many years. 
and heard it in church, but I never really thought that was my music. But I, I it, there was something in my aesthetic that really had been touched by Bach that came forth when I when I heard his uh, his Bachianus Brasileris pieces. And I wanted to have English horn, a double reed, and Brazilian guitar instead of piano, and hand percussion instead of a drum set. So uh, I imagined this new group and uh, eventually chose the name Consort uh, for it, and, and we launched in 1968. That's wonderful, yes. And and then at, at some point, your... Uh, you were introduced to Roger Payne and his album of the uh, Sounds of the Humpback Whale. And tell me, what what was that like when you first like heard the whale sounds? Because that took you, I think, on another trajectory. That was one of the uh, several epiphanies that I experienced in that year of 1968, the year the consort launched. I had heard from a friend that there was going to be a lecture at Rockefeller University in New York on whale songs. And I thought, well, that's really strange. I, what do you mean, whale songs? And he said, oh, man, he said, you listen to these things on headphones and it's better than an LSD trip. And uh, so <laughs> in spite of that possibility, I, uh, I thought uh, I would go. I mean, I've always been curious about different, uh, different sounds and instruments and voices. And this uh, this presentation by Roger Payne really uh, changed my expanded my musical world. I have said always said that it opened the door for me to the larger symphony of the earth. Uh, he explained how these songs of the whales, uh, and these are the males who are singing, um, are sometimes as complex as a as a Beethoven symphony lasting maybe 30 minutes. And then they repeat the entire long complicated song verbatim. And all the whales in that area are singing that same long complicated song. Now that was mind boggling. I mean, to imagine that, that, that this kind of musical intelligence or some kind of, whether you call it musical or not, uh, expressive intelligence in creatures that up till then many people just regarded as big fish. And, uh, but it was the beauty of their voices that moved me. Uh, voices that go off the top end of our hearing and off the bottom end that swoop through all sorts of different uh, patterns. Uh, kind of like a sort of a combination between the trumpet of Miles Davis and elephant trumpets. But I've often said that it was, it was, is moving to me as the first time I heard Charlie Parker. And uh, so that, that, that really became my, uh, my, my community of musicians really expanded. Exactly. And to other than human voices. And there was something that at that time, I think that there was a lot of whaling going on in Japan. And um, there were those who suggested that you might 
that we all might boycott Japan. And you all had a different idea, and, and you were supported in this um, after, I think, a concert in Sacramento, California, maybe. Tell us about going to Japan as ambassadors. Well, that's it's amazing you, that you remember that. 1970 was when Roger Payne's album, Songs of the Humpback Whales, was released. And it became a huge, unique success in the record industry and introduced many people, perhaps millions, to the voices of these creatures and to the fact that they, there was something common that we share with them, whether you call it a soul or something emotional. It, it was very different and I think probably did more for whales, the cause of whales, then all the books in the symposia put together. And that sparked uh, a, a lot of activism toward stopping whaling, toward exploring what the whales, whales might be communicating, which was John Lilly's path. So by the mid-70s, uh, especially in California, there were many, many people interested in the whales. And Jerry Brown in 76, uh, November of 76, created um, Whale Day in Sacramento. It was actually three days. And almost everybody throughout the country who was interested in whales came there, many, many people. And Joni Mitchell came and uh, there were concerts. And it was the first time we got to accompany Gary Snyder. Uh, we met Gary and... Uh, became a lifelong friend. The great synergy, I think, of that gathering was the kind of offstage get-togethers of people talking about uh, what do we do. And it was at a time when uh, there was a, one campaign was uh, with bumper stickers was boycott Japan because they were whaling. And the, the theme, the, the main theme that came out of that weekend for me was from people who said, we can't do that. It, it, first of all, it was awakening a lot of, of old racial prejudice, and especially from the internment during World War II in California. And they said, we've got to cooperate with the Japan. We've got to, we've got to go there and have them experience what we know about the whales. So from that came a big initiative in April of the next year, around Easter. And I think it might, uh, they chartered a 747. I don't know how they, this was all done. And it, it was filled up with activists, musicians, scientists, and all kinds of people. And we went, we did six nights in a dome in Japan called Japan Celebrates the Whale and Dolphin. And it was the first ever environmental event in Japan. And uh, that, was, that, that was quite an amazing breakthrough. And uh, so since then, we've, uh, I've been to Japan maybe 25 times. I've spent time with many, uh, many people there who, for the cause of whales. Roger Payne and I did a tour of whaling cities in Japan, in which Roger explained to these audiences, which were many of them made up from of whaling captains who were who were part of this uh, industry that seemed then to be dying, 
uh, to explain that whale watching in the United States had become a bigger business than whale killing. And they were fascinated with the possibility of converting their enterprises from whale killing to, to whale watching. Um, and that was, that was exciting, and we felt there was a great deal of progress. However, things have turned backwards. And uh, so, once again, Japan, they've defied the, I, the International Whaling Commission. They've, I think, withdrawn from it. Norway is whaling and Russia. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to uh, uh, turn around. Yes, we have to stay ever vigilant for the other voices that are on the planet. I'm here with musician Paul Winter, and we're talking about his journey and his contribution to all of our lives, his musical inspiration. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with recording artist, musician, extraordinaire, and band leader, uh, all sorts of um, wonderful musical accolades uh, with Paul Winter. And Paul, we, we were talking about Japan, and it reminds me, one of your albums, Miho, uh, I believe you recorded at the Miho Museum in Japan, right? Yes. The... The genesis of that was really the Cathedral of New York, which has been a, an international forum for interfaith um, communications and cooperation, where we've been very blessed to be artists in residence since 1980, has been a, a, a place where we have met so many different people from different cultures and uh, a Japanese taiko band came there one time in, in around 2000 <clears throat> and uh they were they weren't playing they were just visiting the dean of the cathedral who had um uh deep connections with japan and his daughter was uh studying there and there are two big shinto vases on either side of the altar in the cathedral along with the uh the jewish menorahs i mean it's a, a, a totally interface very open uh temple so to speak and the the dean called me to come down and and meet these drummers he didn't know quite how to host them and they didn't speak english so he thought well paul is a musician so he'll, he'll know what to do <laughs> in any case to make the story short out of that meeting came uh, a collaboration with them a couple of years later at uh, a university in Pennsylvania, out of which came an invitation to play at their center in in Japan, in the Shigaraki Mountains near Kyoto. And from that performance came a, a very interesting relationship. Uh, they, they embraced our music in the spirit of it. They're an organization devoted to natural agriculture, beauty in the arts, and spiritual healing. 
a very unique organization. So they uh, they commissioned us first to do an album uh, about Crestone in Colorado, where they have a center, uh, uh, an area that I had known because the Lindisfarne Fellowship, which I was part of since the 70s, had a center there as well. And we did that in 2006. And then they asked us to make music about the amazing museum that they uh, built now. It's been 20 years since it was built, uh, for which they had IM Pay do the architecture. And uh, it's, it's, it's a place that I can't really find words to describe. I call it the Taj Mahal of Japan. It's an extraordinary marriage of architecture and nature where the, 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 the museum is built into the mountain. It's built in a, a nature preserve. And to get permission to build it, they had to agree to uh, put the mountain, they, they, to, to, to uh, restore the, the top of the mountain the way it, in its original form. So they took off part, the top of the mountain, built the museum and put the, put the, the top back on. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to, to uh, believe. And there's one room in that museum that has extraordinary acoustics uh, and it, kind of like a miniature of the acoustics uh, in the Cathedral of St. John, which have the seven second reverb. Uh, it's an octagonal stone room that uh, we, we uh, played there and loved the sound. So that led me to, well, that, that sparked this uh, album about the Miho Museum in 2010. And it's also an integral part of the, the new album I've just finished called Light of the Sun. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad uh, that, that that is continuing on and we can hear the newest iterations of that. Um, which, which takes me to your uh, work with um, the idea of performing with other than human species like wolves and birds, dolphins, whales. Um, one of your albums, I think, is called Wolf Eyes. Uh, when you fir first met a wolf and were you were inspired. When, tell us about that first meeting with a, a wolf that really spoke to your heart. This was another, what I call the <laughs> epiphanies that I experienced in 1968. Four months after the after I heard the whales, I read in the local paper in the town where I was living, then read in Connecticut, that there was going to be a wolf at the middle school, uh, a program with a wolf. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen a wolf, and I can't really imagine what that must be like. Uh, and so I went, and uh, it was a deeply moving lecture by a man named John Harris, who uh, was touring the country with these two wolves that were, they were the wolves that had grown up in captivity, but they were not tame. You can't tame a wolf, but they were socialized enough that they weren't absolutely uh, petrified at the sight of a human or the, the smell of one. And he showed a film called Death of a Legend, an amazing film from CBC that showed, that talked about this uh, very un undeserved uh, stigma that the wolves that came with the people from Europe about wolves and, and pointed out that there had never been an authenticated case of a healthy wolf 
attacking a human in North America. They are, they are not our enemy. And, uh, and it showed wolves being slaughtered from helicopter, etc. It was, it was moving in many ways. And then John went out and came down the aisle with these two wolves who named, they were named Jethro and Clem on, on leads. And, um, talked more about them while the wolves were on stage with him, just sort of ranging around. They don't lay down like a, uh, or lie down, should I say, like uh, dogs will. You really know that there's some other intensity happening with the wolves. And uh, at the end of the program, he had all the kids file up on stage and pet the wolves. Well, that was such a breakthrough for so many people. Uh, to have a kid come home and tell their parents, I petted a wolf today. I mean, nobody, they, they wouldn't believe it. And um, John, uh, I, I, that night, uh, after the program, I went around to the back of the, the building where he uh, had put the wolves in the van in which they traveled. And I just was just, was, I was so beguiled with their, the, the, the way they looked and the way they, they the, the spirit they seemed to have. I was just standing at the, in the back of the van and the wolf was looking out through the door and looked at me directly with these deep amber eyes in which I sensed not just his curiosity about me, but the, the wisdom of, of 30 million years of heritage. Um, and it was it was very deeply moving for me, and that's what gave rise to this first piece that I wrote called Wolf Eyes. You know, Paul, I, I just uh, completed an interview. Actually, it was yesterday with Richard Louvre. I'm not sure if you know of his work. Uh, his newest book is called Our Wild Calling. It has a wolf on the cover. And one of the things that I discovered in his book is that maybe. Maybe we've been in in proximity to wolves for centuries. I mean, millennia, and and going back to caveman days, so to speak. And he he said that possibly that wolves, because of their social structure, that they have actually civilized humankind <laughs> and that that we're that that when we're at our best we are we act according in our uh, communities like wolves when we're at our best and uh, so it really goes along with what you're saying uh, about these uh, extraordinary creatures and when when your album came out I think, was it called Wolf Eyes? Was that the name of the album? <clears throat> the album was called Common Ground in, Common, oh. the, the, in which that piece appeared. It, it, it was actually 10 years. Uh, it took me a number of years to, um, to evolve that piece because I wanted to have the voice of a wolf give us the seed theme and, and, to, and to incorporate that voice into the recording. So... It took me a number of experiences uh, going out howling with the wolf biologists in Minnesota. Uh, I finally recorded um, uh, a duet with wolves in Doyle, California. At the, it's a predatory animal center that was uh, there at that time where uh, a captive wolf one night uh, responded to 
calls that I made on my saxophone. Um, and I'd had a number of experiences then in uh, listening to Wolf's Howl in, in the wild. And the, so the piece had evolved by, it was 1977, we recorded the album Common Ground. A few years later, there was a, an anthology release that had the title Wolf Eyes. Ah, right. Okay, that's what I was remembering. But Common Ground was really that first album that had that sound and with your saxophone and the wolf sound. I mean, it just, it continues to reverberate in my mind. <laughs> I, I hear it as if I'm listening to the recording itself because it's somehow recorded on the neurons of my brain. <laughs> you wow. know? It's amazing. Just that was just amazing to, to have you, um, do that and pursue that, and uh, all the all the others. I I know, uh, I I know that you've been kayaking with orcas uh, in the um, up in off of British Columbia um, in Canada, and that must have been an extraordinary uh, event. I think any time that, that that we are in the presence of a wild creature. Um, th there's a chance that we can be really deeply touched and, and, and changed. Uh, I've always felt it was a tremendous gift or stroke of luck to get to be in their presence. Most wild creatures will disappear instantly at the sight or sound or smell of a human. Um, and uh, when they stay, when they allow you to be in their presence, um, it's it, it, for me. It's a tremendous honor, and uh, in 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 that case, I was um, with a, a biologist named Paul Spong, who had a and still I think does have a uh, an orca a, a, a research station in the Johnston Strait in British Columbia, um, and uh, he had a three person kayak called a Bidarka, built by an amazing young man from uh, Vancouver named George Dyson, uh, that um, we would go out in in the afternoon. And each afternoon you would, he knew exactly when the, when the, the pod of orcas would be coming down the channel to, um, uh, to, in their feeding run. And uh, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll continue that story in our next segment. Yeah, just one moment. Um, I just want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Paul Winter, and we're talking about his whole musical, his life work, uh, and I'm so excited to be with him. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with recording artist Paul Winter, and we're talking about his journey and the journey he's taken us all on with his music. And we're talking about um, being with the orcas up off of uh, British Columbia, and I'd love for you to finish that story, Paul. The uh, the orcas come through this channel every day, and and, and uh, you can see them coming from the the uh, blows, the vapor from their uh, exhales, and we would get in this uh, by darka. The um, I was uh, in the front with my saxophone playing into an aluminum tube that was lashed to the prow that went down to the water thinking that might carry the sound through the interface. In the middle was my friend Mickey Houlihan with a, a stereo Nagra uh, tape recorder and a, a, a mic that went mixing the mic from the in-air mic getting my horn to a, a hydrophone that went in the water to record the whales. And in the back was a guy paddling. And we would maneuver the Bidarka in the path, uh, to be in the path of these whales as they were coming up the channel. And by the way, this is not some great feat of bravery because the orcas are not a threat to humans. And uh, many, many people have done this and been in boats and the orcas never swamped them. And so in any case, um, as as I could hear the orcas through the headphones I was wearing, uh, I would try to imitate their their calls. And so we did get some simultaneities, I'll call it. I don't know that they heard me or that I can't say it's a duet, but it was great to just be with them and and uh, get to find a seed theme that we could play and then develop into a piece that we called Sea Wolf. How wonderful, how wonderful. Uh, you know, uh, your music has traveled far and wide your music has even traveled to the moon. <laughs> and when I say far and wide, I really mean it. I mean, and I think that they've named a couple of craters after some of your, your songs. I know Icarus was one, and Ghost Beats, was that the other? Right. And actually, I should say there are both songs by Ralph Towner, the guitarist in the band at that time. And uh, that was another amazing, just a stroke of luck our cellist in 1970 david darling um was the brother-in-law of a scientist astronaut named joe allen who was in charge of apollo 15 joe loved our music he turned the four astronauts onto our album road the one that uh has the original recording of icarus and they took a cassette with them to the moon and The astronauts on each of the moon trips got to name new craters that they discovered. So they they named two craters after these two pieces from our album. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I I know in this last moments here we're we're together, I I want to mention your uh, work with diversity, not only biodiversity, but diversities of culture and the work that you've done in South America and Brazil. I mean, I, I know that you you talk about uh, America, and in you do these concerts that are available now. They've been virtual for the last couple of times uh, for each Earth quarter, like the equinoxes and the solstice. And uh, in the the last one, it was uh, done for the. Um, 
equinox, the fall equinox in September of 2020, and you called it a salute to multiculturalism in the Americas. And when we say America, a lot of us think, oh, we're just talking about the U.S., but America is much, there's South America, North America, I mean, it's, it's huge. And um, I'd love for you to say something about um, your work with cultural diversity. We grew up with cultural diversity in this country. I think it's the, it's the middle name, it's the theme of uh, the United States. It's also very much the theme of Brazil. I've always been fascinated with the analogies in our two countries that are roughly the same size and both populated by uh, uh, peoples from Europe and, and Africa, as well as indigenous peoples. Uh, things happen a little differently in each of our countries in terms of how those, how those uh, cultural traditions intermingled, because in the Portuguese were always, always very open toward uh, intermingling with the, the, their, the people they colonized, whereas in our country, the English were kind of uh, kept separate and wanted. But in any case, the point is that multiculturalism is one of the great themes of both Americas. And uh, it's been under siege in recent years. And uh, we're committed to doing everything we can to make sure that it endures and we continue to have uh, respect and, and, and continue to welcome uh, the people who come here to this country, just as all of our ancestors, uh, those of us from European traditions, all of our ancestors were, uh, were immigrants. And I know you have a long history of this. I mean, going back to the early 80s when you were in, invited or you traveled to Russia and, and you took part in that, those Soviet um, space bridge um, things that were happening when citizens, diplomats were going to Russia and so forth. And, and you created an album, uh, the first, I think, American-Russian album together. Earthbeat, was that the, the right yes. one? Yeah. So can you say uh, what that was like to be in Russia and this, um, in, with a large heritage of their own and being at the, one of their most famous lakes, Lake Baikal? Is that, I'm not sure. Lake Baikal. Right. Um, Michael. Yes, it was Lake Baikal that drew me to go to Russia uh, because of the, the Baikal seal, the only uh, one of the 33 pinnipeds, the finfoots, uh, that lives in freshwater. Um, and also the allure of that lake, which is the largest and deepest uh, on Earth and, and uh, it is very much analogous to me in my experience to my favorite place of pilgrimage in our country, which is the Grand Canyon. After several trips to Russia in the 80s, I finally got permission to, to do a tour with the consort. And at our final concert in, in, at Moscow University in September of, of 86, we were billed with um, the Dmitry Pokrovsky Ensemble, 12 young men and women who had devoted themselves to learning the traditions of ancient Russian village music. And we were so beguiled by their sound 
uh, this Slavic singing, which uh, I had first heard in the Bulgarian singers in the 60s. And uh, that led to our collaborating on the album Earthbeat. Uh, and then they toured with us in 25 cities uh, the, ne the next year. Paul, I know you've entered your 80s now, and um, uh, you, you said something earlier about um, being, um, looking, for, uh, well, being, having these epiphanies along the way. And I just, I want to say, uh, we're looking forward to your future epiphanies and <laughs> how you will share that with us. So uh, tell me, what, how, what do you see? Anything in the future and what, what your plans might be to, to continue on with this extraordinary work? There have always been so many projects on the, uh, on the drawing board that, that uh, I, I, it would take me several lifetimes to fulfill all of them. The ones I'm involved with now, uh, having just completed this uh, album, the first one that totally features my own horn <clears throat> called Light of the Sun, is uh, an album called Sun Child uh, that will be probably premiered in our next winter solstice. Uh, event, um, the idea being that uh, uh, the earth is a child of the sun and each of us is likewise. Uh, it's an album that will incorporate uh, many different creature voices with many different instruments from different cultures. And then the biggest project I've tackled, which has been going on now for over a decade, called Flyways a celebration of the great bird migration from Southern Africa through the Middle East uh, to, to Eurasia. Oh, both of these are so worthy, so worthy. Oh, golly. I, 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 you just mentioned the uh, uh, winter solstice uh, and that people can tune into these quarterly places. Are, are you going to keep doing them virtually, and how do people tune into them? The upcoming winter solstice, which um, will be um, a virtual recording, an audio recording, the premiere probably of the Sunchild album, um, it, it's going to be our 40, 41st annual winter solstice celebration. The first 40 were all done in the cathedral in New York, which is now closed and uh, temporarily, but we hope next year that, the, that, that we'll be back in the cathedral. Uh, but people can find out about any of these programs on our website, which is paulwinter.com. Great. Oh, Paul, it's just been so wonderful being with you to, today. And I, I hope this is just stimulating everyone to pull out their, their albums they've collected through <laughs> the years, or if they haven't collected them yet, to, to go out and find them. Uh, uh, thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions once more. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. I've been speaking with Paul Winter at his home by remote connection. And if you want to know more about his work, as he just said, you and his new album, Light of the Sun, and any other work, you can go to his website, paulwinter.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us on New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,715. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.